0: I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell for your listening pleasure this morning and uh, we welcome you to uh, Calvary Church Elevation Worship as well. We're in a series in the book of Romans and uh, you have a little outline available for you. If you have a Bible in hand, I encourage you to get that or the one in the chair rack right in front of you. I'd like to talk this morning from the book of Romans on the topic of being set free. As we get into this morning's topic, it's all about the wrath of God. It's a subject that most churches have been desiring to hear more about most of us just can't get enough of that wrath we invite our friends and family in fact neighbors that don't want to go to church this would be the Sunday that they should be here so the wrath of God is not always a popular subject it's not the one that we want to videotape to so invite our friends over to watch and it drove home the point to me this about a week and a half ago I was with a friend and have known him for some time doesn't go here And we spent essentially the afternoon together. And it was interesting as we talked about his life, how things are going, he talked about his wife. Three months after he and his wife got married, she began to have these tremendous emotional breakdowns. She struggled with anxiety and depression. She's been hospitalized since they've been married for, I don't know, 13 or 14 years. She's been hospitalized about 28 times depression and anxiety. She seemingly cannot get emotional stability into her life. And it's interesting, as we discussed kind of his background and her background, this is what he said. He says, my wife grew up in a home where her father was a man of wrath and condemnation. And when her earthly father and mother divorced, he blamed her his daughter, my friend's wife. She carries that guilt of every time something would go wrong, he, the father, would blame her, the daughter. And it so devastated her. My friend also told me that she grew up in a church. This is his description of that church. That that church believed in the Old Testament God. That was an Old Testament God-preaching church and what he meant by that is that that church was known for its judgmental condemnatory attitude sort of that wrath like attitude that everybody deserves hell and we're gonna judge you all and we're gonna judge you until you decide not to go there And she grew up with all this teaching of being condemned and blamed and shame and guilt it was so much for her that finally in her adult years it began to grow fruit of depression and discouragement and anxiety and cutting and suicide and so it just unfortunately revealed itself in their marriage and he told me even though he has a full-time job he told me my calling in life now is just to help my life my wife live every day. That's what I do. Oh, wow. When I hear that story, and those are stories that many of us are familiar with, it reminded me that even as this morning we talk about the wrath of God, that if we just land there on Romans 1 where we are today, and that becomes the sum total of our belief system, and that becomes the driving force of our theology, and that becomes the the motive behind our reach to other people then we are a heretical group. Because as we look at the book of Romans, as they put on the back side of the outline at the very top, I wanted you to see the flow of the book of Romans, that yes, the first three chapters are heavy into sin. it 's all about sin, how we have fallen short of the glory of God. but that 's not the sum total of the story. Unless you read a letter and read the whole letter, you're going to miss out on essence of what that letter is all about. Because although it begins in sin, then you notice in chapters 4, 5, and 6, it talks about salvation, that we want to be saved from that sin. And then not just salvation, but it moves into sanctification. The chapters 7 and 8 are all about being set free from that sin. And into the holiness of God, so that as Romans 8, 1 tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are not condemned. We are set free from the condemnation, the wrath. And then he talks about the sovereignty of God in Romans 9 through 11. That once it's settled fact that I am living in the holiness of God, I trust Him completely to be my sovereign Ruler. People in sin don't trust the sovereignty of God. People outside of sin, beyond sin, moved into sanctification say, yeah, the sovereignty of God doesn't always make sense, but I have learned that I can trust Him. And then the last section of the book that we're going to talk about in Romans 12 to the end, 16, is all about service. So now as a result of being set free from sin into salvation into sanctification and the sovereign rule of God, I want to serve Him. So I serve Him freely, voluntarily, with great desire and passion. That's our spiritual journey. That's the book of Romans. So don't settle in one section and say, wow, that's a terrible God. Don't settle in one section and go out and say, that's the God I want to reveal to you. Say, I need to so- see the God who is over the entire book in my entire life. And to help us then to understand this, let me read Romans one eighteen through the end of that chapter, which is one of the most troubling sections of this whole book, and it will cause some of us to not want to listen. But Romans 1.18 begins this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of an Corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity So that their bodies would be dishonored among them For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator Who was blessed forever Amen For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Can you imagine being those Christians in Rome, Little House Church, reading this letter from Paul in Corinth, describing behavior that they are now feeling very guilty over. Not an easy passage, but let me break it down as I see it this morning. I believe it's going to ask and answer three questions. The first question we're going to ask and answer is, what reveals the wrath of God? Because he talks about revealing that wrath. And then secondly, he wants us to address what are those, what are those behaviors that he wants to believe, bring his wrath upon? And then finally, how should we respond to the wrath of God? The first question has to do with what behavior reveals God's wrath the word wrath is a Greek word orgē. it can mean a lot of things and there's a whole lot of things could be written about it but let me summarize it with the phrase I have on the screen the wrath of God is an abiding state of mind it's not subject to quick reactions there is a term that talks about sort of like anger that blows up like a volcano then subsides very quickly that's not this this is this abiding state of mind that God has towards behavior that is sinful and in particular, there are specific behaviors that he has his wrath upon. And that's what Paul wants to describe. He says, I don't want to take lightly the wrath of God. I don't want to dismiss it because it's not politically correct. I don't want to overlook it because it doesn't fill churches as a topic that people want to listen to. He says, I just want to tell you that it's a reality. This is the God that we worship. This is one aspect of our God. It's not the whole sum total of who our God is, but it's one thing that He does. So what triggers the wrath of God? What are those behaviors that reveals His wrath? There's two of them in this passage. The first is this. What reveals the wrath of God and stirs His wrath is when we suppress the truth about God, which is evident to all. When we suppress God's truth, but it's evident to everyone. So to support the concept that God's wrath is evident to everyone, the Apostle Paul goes into verses 18 and 19 and says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. What? Against all ungodliness of men and unrighteousness of men. What about them? When they suppress this truth, suppress the truth, they do it in unrighteousness. Why? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Then verse 20 also says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and the divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. God says, I created this world so that as you look at the world, you look at medicine, you look at science, you look at your your body, how your eyes, your ears, and how the universe functions and how this world just hangs in a balance and it's just unknowable in all the vastness of this universe and that it's a mystery that it all hangs together and life keeps on living and new life keeps coming into this world. When you look at all that, He says you look at the science of this world, you have to sit back and say, wow, that couldn't have just come out of a sludge pond and just coincidentally, or if given enough time, turn out the way it is. So that's basically what he's saying. It's evident to all, my eternal power and divine nature. And those who do not believe that, those who believe in evolution, who downsize our God to a little g God, those who do that, they're simply suppressing truth. They're not living in the reality of what God says to be true. It's interesting, I was reading about this, and I'm not one prone to read astrophysicist comments, but I love this one. Robert Jastrow, who is an astrophysicist of NASA, put it this way. Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world, creation, Genesis 1, 2. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks what caused, produced this effect. Who or what put matter and energy in the universe? And science cannot answer these questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. And that's the truth. The skepticism and the irrational belief in an evolutionary system where there is no God and it's pure chance and coincidence. When all the evidence says there is a designer and a creator and the marvel of what God has done, God says those who do not believe in what God has done are simply suppressing the truth. But we know deep inside there's truth to what we say. It's interesting. I love to read in the newspaper about uh, quotes of the year. In the sports section of the Orange County Register and a couple of weeks ago, at the end of 2013, they had a whole bunch of quotes of athletes in various sports arenas. They came up with one quote of a kind of a regular guy. His name is Dougie Thompson and a crocodile. Seems Dougie Thompson was down in Cancun in 2013 playing golf because he was there for a friend who was getting married. And so they're doing the bachelor stuff that they do down in Cancun. So he's playing on this 18-hole course, and as he's playing along, this 12-foot-long crocodile there attacked Dougie and got onto the ground and began chewing on his side and uh, needed 200 stitches. And his friends were there with their golf clubs beating the living daylights out of this crocodile and ran over it with one of their golf carts. <laughs> and so it wasn't a very good day for Dougie Thompson. I think he was visiting from Scotland, as a, as a matter of fact. So, you know, watch out for the Crocs on the golf course in Cancun. But what really caught my eye was what Dougie Thompson said in response to what happened to him. And This is what he said. It's only by the grace of God that I'm alive and I'm an atheist. <laughs> you can't deny that there's something in all of us that no matter how much we may say we are agnostic or atheistic, we still can't get beyond the fact that there is something that is creating and designing and rules over all of us. There is a God. Paul the Apostle says, My wrath gets stirred when I see the people of the earth that I created suppress truth about me. That stirs my wrath. Secondly, it stirs the wrath of God when we exchange the truth about God for that which is false. The Apostle Paul then continues on in verse 22 professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of a corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They create all this idolatry there in Rome. All these man-made creatures that they worship, they'd rather worship a piece of wood than a living God. It's just craziness that we would not worship the true living God and prefer a corruptible man and an idol. And then he goes on and Emphasizes they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the image and the form of a corruptible man. God, His wrath, sits upon those who suppress His truth in the face of evidence that it's a lie. God and His wrath rest upon those who exchange His truth for a lie. We are in the exchange business today. We can't acknowledge that there is one true God. We have to create little gods so we can have our own value systems. So we exchange the one true God and maybe I decide one day Dave Mitchell is a god. I am my own God. In my own secular humanistic philosophy of life, I have determined my own value systems. So I create my own value systems by becoming my own God. I exchange the one true God to become my own God. That's what they did there. They took the one true God and they created their own little g-gods. And when you create your own little g-gods, you create your own value systems. In a week. Coming up. We're going to honor Sanctity of Life Sunday. That means a lot of things. One of the things it means is that we believe in the precious life of an unborn child. And some of us are willing to do whatever it takes to save that baby. But in today's economy, we have exchanged the life of an unborn child for the convenience of a would-be mother. In today's economy, we have exchanged the sacredness of a man and a woman becoming husband and wife, a covenant for life. We've exchanged that for the settled peace and happiness of divorce, so we think. We've exchanged that covenant of one woman, one man, covenant for life. We've exchanged that for just shacking up and living together. We've taken the covenant of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, living together, covenant as God designed it, his creation of the world that Moses records for us in Genesis 1 and 2. We've exchanged that and created now, now just recently, we have created the the lie, the counterfeit of homosexual marriage. We're very good at creating our own gods so that we can create our own value systems. And that's what Paul is arguing against. Don't create your own God so that you can create your own value system. So you can exchange the true God for your God, so you can exchange the values of our God for the values of each of us. And that is a danger One theologian put it this way, we exchange the one true God for our own God so we can create our own values to guide our lives. And once that takes place, once we stir the wrath of God because we suppress His truth and because we exchange His truth for a lie, then there are consequences that come. Consequences that come out of the wrath of God because people persist in doing those two things. Suppressing truth, exchanging truth for that which is a lie. Consequences begin to occur. And they are three of them. We're given over to degrading passions. Romans 1, 26 and 27 says it this way, "...for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural." And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their heir. The first consequence of God's wrath upon those who suppress the truth and exchange the truth is that He takes those who have degrading passions, Paul calls it, degrading passions, and He gives them over to it. He gives them over to it in the sense that God says, I abandon you in it. I release you into that. I am absent from you in that. You go ahead and enjoy the behavior that I describe as degrading passions and I release you into that because I have given you over. No longer will I argue with you as you suppress the truth and exchange the truth for a counterfeit lie. I release you into that. That's no place anybody should be. I would never want to be where God is not in his desire to work in my life. That's why I sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty. I want to live under the sovereign rule of God because, as a little g God, Dave Mitchell, little g God, I'm bound to have all kinds of heartache and stomach ache because I don't get it like God gets it. And so God says, I'm going to give you over to that behavior. The, homosexual movement of today takes this passage and explains it this way to reflect the suppression of truth the exchange of truth how do they explain it they say you take the unnatural behavior and you do that in other words heterosexuals natural inclination is between a man and a woman so hopefully in marriage. But if a heterosexual takes this behavior and becomes homosexual, then they have gone from what is natural to homosexual, what is unnatural. And so Paul's not talking about homosexuals for whom this is a natural behavior. That is what you call suppression and exchange of biblical truth to conveniently fit my little g God value system so I can be comfortable in that behavior and so that is one way that God has given over people degrading passions that is a counterfeit to all that we believe in today secondly we are given over to depraved mind filled with all kinds of sins in Romans 1.32 let me pick it up in verse 28 That wonderful list of sins that are so haunting. He says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, again, a second time, God gave them over, not to degrading passions, but now to a depraved mind, he says, to do those things which are not proper. So what are those things which are not proper? Here are some of them. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. It is an interesting thing to me that in the same lust where he says, you know, murder, murder is wrong. He also says, oh, by the way, right next to murder is strife. And right next to strife is deceit. And you keep on going down the list, malice, gossip, slanders. And he looks at a church like us, and many of us would say, you know what? I have never gone into the degrading passion of homosexual behavior. Well, Paul says, we'll keep reading. Because not only have I given you over to that degraded passion, but now I want to address the deprived, depraved minds of those of us who actually use slander as a form of a prayer request where we put somebody down or gossip as a form of a prayer request where we whisper behind someone's back, where we we have these behaviors that we can spin in our own minds the way the homosexual sexual movement spins their behavior so that it looks acceptable it's not as bad as murder we think a heart full of envy pastors all over this country including myself have these times of envy when you look at a church doing X, Y, and Z that is notarized and is exciting and lots of success and people are talking about it and then you look at yourself and say oh my goodness we just don't measure up envy is in the same list of homosexual behavior and murder and God says persist in suppressing that truth, persist in exchanging that truth for that lie I give you over to that and there are a lot of pastors who are arrogant, very arrogant. And in pride, we, we take exception to those that would criticize us. How, how would you criticize my preaching of the Word? But in arrogance, we rise up and we have anger. Inventors of evil. That's an interesting sin. I've never seen that in the Ten Commandments or anywhere else. But inventors of evil. We invent ways to do more evil. Um, You know, when I was a kid, a long time ago, and I suppose if you were honest, you'd say amen to that. When I was a kid a long time ago, there was this TV show that you can only see on the TV channel, I suspect, by now, called I Love Lucy. I know I'm dating myself. But in I Love Lucy, Ricky and Lucy... In the bedroom, we're always on separate twin beds. Oh, to see that. And then when Lucy got pregnant, they didn't know what to do about the show. We can't use the word pregnant on TV, and we'd always show her from here on up because we wouldn't want to show what pregnant people look like. And then when the Beatles came out, and I think it was like 64 or so, I remember my dad preaching about the Beatles. Their first song, I Want to Hold Your Hand. Suddenly this these four guys from England come to the United States of America and they're on Ed Sullivan's show. And can you believe it? They had long hair. Oh, my. We Oh, boy, sermons were ripe with that stuff. And then they sang about a song, I Want to Hold Your Hand, because in that sermon, as you began by introducing it with I Want to Hold Your Hand, the end game of that sermon is that that's going to lead to premarital sex. And then I remember when Elvis came on TV. Elvis Presley TV cameras and that black and white TV of ours in our little den would show Elvis from here on up because Elvis's hips were going <laughs> like that and I know I just violated some of your eyes you I know it's going to lead to premarital sex for you too right now but those Those were devastating evils that were coming into our country from the South and from England, wherever Elvis Presley came from. Those were terrible evils. Now, you know, back in those days, if I wanted to look at pornography as a little sixth grader, I'd have to go to my friend's treehouse where he kept his dad's Playboy magazines. So I had to risk life and limb to be able to see that garbage as a little kid, which I'm not proud to say, and all 5th and 6th graders should never do that. This is just pretend. But now, if a 5th or 6th grader wants to see that and much more, there's an inventor of evil where they can just take that little iPhone and push a couple of buttons and begin to see that we have invented evil, we have invented ways that evil is just thriving and so the Apostle Paul says even that I give you over to it unless you stop and so when we want to rail against those who are homosexual in homosexual marriage we also recognize that in that same list, in that same call, in that same wrath of God topic, in that same arena of condemnation are behaviors that you and I can so easily pass above as if it is not touching me I can do it let's be honest a lot of us can do it and that list is the list that we need to keep before us and so when we find those lists what happens when especially in the homosexual movement of today and the things that I have just said about homosexuality if I was in Canada I'd probably be arrested by now by the Royal Mounting police But that's the world in which we live. And what happens is that when we go through those behaviors and we are called out on those behaviors, we do what the Apostle Paul said they did in those days. We find people to approve of those sins. We gather together with those that share like-mindedness in this. And so we have churches that now have come out of non-existent congregations to support these behaviors. Selectively so because we don't always know what now is no longer a sin, what still remains a sin. We live in a sort of fragile environment where morally we're not always sure are those still sins or aren't they You know, we're just not even sure anymore. When does that go from the sin column to the non-sin column? In the last 10-15 years homosexuality has moved from sin to to non-sin. What else are we going to exchange from one column to the next? When does that stop? There is something that God has built within all of us that some people call natural law or this general revelation where God has revealed those things that are obviously wrong and we just suppress that truth. So we gather with those that approve. As he says, they not only do the same but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So we have lobbyists. We have political caucuses. We have groups of people who now surround, behaviors that have been exchanged from that which is from God to that which is now my God, little g God. i want to show you a case study of why God gives over people to these behaviors. It seems like he should be intervening, divining. He's not willing that anyone would perish. Let me take you to 2 Chronicles 33, and I show you this on the screen. King Manasseh was a wicked king, and it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, And they paid no attention to God. See, they're suppressing God's truth. They're exchanging God's truth for false idolatry in that day. So therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. So what God does, he illustrates what he's talking about, Romans 1 with the Second Chronicles 33. He takes Manasseh and he gives them over to his behavior. I'm going to give you into that. I abandon you. You're no longer the king in Israel. I give you to Assyria. Have fun with those hooks and those bronze chains. So he ships them off. And so when he was in distress... He entreated the Lord as God and humbled himself before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to God, he was moved. God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That's all that God is interested in. He says, I know that you're doing that. I'm giving you over to that so that you will experience pain or distress as it's called here. So in your distress, you will say, you know, there's something missing. Something is not working when I become my own God. I need to go back to the one true God so as it says there Manasseh knew that the Lord was his God and our prayer should be and our passion should be that those of us who have family members and friends who are being given over to these behaviors that as they are given over like Manasseh pray for them like Manasseh that they would humble their hearts they would call upon the God of the universe and that they would finally know that he is the one true God Now, the last question, what should be our response? Don't judge them. Don't judge others and since we have all have our own sinful problems to be judged, as it says here. But do you suppose, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment? You won't. Sometimes when we judge, say, homosexuality, which is such a popular thing for a lot of us to judge and to want to judge and to condemn and to rail against and so forth, like these people we think that somehow we're doing God's work and God doesn't want the competition God doesn't need my help don't judge Him because I have my own baggage that needs to be forgiven somewhere on that list of ins- being insolent arrogant envious slander gossiper I'm right there I battle that too that's my struggle I don't want to be that way confess it and so when i'm in the same list as those that i want to rail and judge against i need to be very careful because these people holding those signs are probably the same people that paul was talking about because you too are being judged by your behavior the second thing that i noticed that he says in this is to show kindness that leads to repentance i love romans 2 4 Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That kind of goes against what we really naturally are inclined to feel, because it looks like I'm going to endorse or enable, and we're not. Kindness of Christ to those that sinned was a masterful technique of drawing them into His presence. And we can show kindness without enabling and endorsing. We can show kindness that actually leads to repentance. And that's what God calls us to. About a month ago, I read a letter that I got out of a journal of a woman who was in a university, a public university, who was a self-acclaimed feminist lesbian. And she came to her church and her parents' church, and I shared with you, or at least some of us, the story of how that church loved on her in ways that brought her to Jesus Christ, and she repented of her homosexual behavior and lifestyle. After that message, that same morning, a woman came up to me from Calvary Church, who goes here to our church. And she said, That woman's story is my story. I grew up as a lesbian and I've come to faith in Christ. I said, would you mind writing me about that? And she wrote me this letter, and I can't read the whole thing for the sake of time. But listen to some of her words. One of your fellow Calvary family members, homosexual, changed by Jesus. I appreciated the tenderness and sensitivity which you addressed that other woman's story, the lesbian feminist university professor. It tells me that you have compassion for people who struggle. Wasn't that the essence of her whole story? She expected to be criticized, judged, and condemned by the church, but instead they loved on her and accepted her right where she was and extended grace and mercy to her. She was definitely in a wrestling match with the Lord like Jacob and the angel of the Lord. But while she wrestled with the Lord, the Lord's people did not extend a finger of judgment but arms of mercy. One of my struggles has been trying to trust God, I've trusted Him for my salvation at age eight, but I've been not able to trust Him as father, friend, and faithful. For decades, I tried to find within myself that switch I could flip so I could trust Him. I knew I should trust Him, but I just couldn't get there from here. A couple of years ago, I was doing a Beth Moore Bible study, and she made a statement that kind of turned my world upside down. She said, you can't trust God until you get to know Him. And suddenly, the light bulb went on. Satan's been pretty good over the years at using guilt as a gnarled club to beat me up every time I sinned or behaved in an unchristian-like manner. The guilt would derail me sometimes for days, weeks, months, and even years. I played a lot of sports. One of the things that professional athletes do is they immediately forget their mistakes. I'd like to be able to do that. And I hear God saying, when you ask me for forgiveness, you need to just let the sin and guilt go. I do. It's as far as the east is from the west. She says, as that gal in the story said, it takes time. Sanctification is a process. My process feels mostly glacier-like, excruciatingly slow, with not much to show for it. But the Lord recently reminded me, what you do get after the glacier melts, after the sun comes out, after it melts the frozenness away, you get the Yosemite Valley. God is at work. God hasn't given up on me. I know your frame, he said to me. I know that you are but dust. We are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It was God's kindness that led her out of the exchanged value system back into the true one God. I think that you and I need to be very careful, and I say that to myself as much as to any of us, that we don't try to legislate a behavior until we get to the core issue. What Paul's talking about in this passage is the core issue. The core issue, they have exchanged the true God for their own little g-God. And as a result, their value system has branches of fruit that are corrupt if you just pick the corrupt fruit but you never go back to the core root issue, you don't change people. You don't judge them into changing. You don't condemn them into changing. You love them by this fertile kindness of God to the root system that allows new fruit of righteousness to grow. You and I need to bring people to the light of Christ and let His light change the core to become the light of Christ in their own righteous living. There's a great truth that comes out of this passage. And it's found in Romans 1.21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. They live in darkness. We're going to go dark right now so we can illustrate and amplify that you and I We need to be the light of Jesus Christ that draws people to the repentance and the grace and the salvation and the cleansing work that He provides for us. As Matthew 5 tells us, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But in the lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our good works of kindness glorifies God. As Jesus is told, in Him was life, and the light, life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so John points us to the problem. But as Jesus says, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And as was predicted in Isaiah, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, referring to the Messiah. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And so we see as the cross is that light that helped you and I to see the way out of our sin. We need to be that light that draws everyone else into the righteousness of Christ. That they recognize the one True God that we worship together. I'm going to pray for us, and after my prayer, we're going to be lead in worship. And if you would use the tables of communion, the bread and the cup that symbolizes the presence of that cross, it symbolizes what Jesus did on that cross. That we become that light that leads in kindness people to repentance, the offering to give as well. Come up and pray that God would set you free from whatever you have suppressed in unrighteousness that you would live that true life for Christ. Father God, I thank you that you have given to us difficult truth that is hard to comprehend, hard to stay with. But Father, that you are a God who loves us so much that your wrath, it abides, but we can be set free from it through the person of Jesus Christ and to live for Him, and to know Him, and to walk with Him, and to become the light with Him that leads others from those things they've been given over to, so that they too can be set free as well. Help us, Father, to lead the way in the light of who Christ is. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.